This is the Meiji at 150 Student Podcast. My name is Jasmine. Today I'm going to talk about pre war and post war Japanese pop music. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, Professor. So, we're talking about pre war and post war Japanese popular music. Yes. So, why did you choose this topic?、Uh, At first, I'm interested in Japanese pop, popular music just because、uh, since I was small,、uh, since I was in high school, I was really addicted to Japanese idols. And until now, I'm still very concerned and、um, often、uh, s- s- watch over the videos on YouTube. So I was very interested to know what's the relationship between Japanese pop music and how. How can it reflect some of the political, social, or historical context at that time, especially in the war period? Because I think it is a really a milestone moment for all of the nations in the world. So that's why I start to work on it. Oh, okay. So you're interested in more contemporary music and being in a history class, go look into the history、yes. of, of pop music. Yes, exactly. Okay, and so then what did you discover in doing your research about pre war and post war music?、Um, what I find really surprising and interesting is that at first I don't feel like, I feel like Japanese popular music is quite detached from the historical context because, in my opinion, I thought、uh, Japanese popular music is kind of a music of.、Uh, It's a music of a universal thing, and it's a music for common people and common citizens. And I thought it would be quite detached from the political influence from that, like in historical context. But after I really、uh, investigate into this issue, I find that it was totally different from what I thought because every aspect of Popular music actually reflects some kinds of、um, historical elements or political influence at that time. So I think this is a really good experience to, to me because from now on, every time when I listen to popular music of、um, no matter which country or from at which era, I'm going to like, think deeply about that because I think. Yeah, because from this experience, I realized that it actually not just on the surface, like it's not just a popular music. It means more than that.、Oh. Yes. Okay, so, so let's jump in. Where did you start with, and what, what kind of pop music did you, did you discover?、Uh, in my presentation, I actually give a very brief history since、um, there is an emergence of popular music defined by some music scholars. but... Today, I'm going to、uh, focus mainly on pre war and post war period. And, and from the, the first period I'm going to talk about is, of course, the Second World War period, because there is obviously a very conspicuous、uh, influence of the war that we can see post on the popular music of Japan at that time. And I found that what's interesting is that the involvement of the Content of the war songs was very consistent with the course and development of Second World War. For example, when the Second World War reached a peak, many scholars defined it as the, the Pacific War with the、U、United States. The composition of war songs、uh, actually is very patriotic, and obviously, the aims of 
this sort of propaganda war songs is to cultivate the nationalist sentiments of the general public and to, on the other hand, it's aiming to incite some kind of grievances and hatred towards their enemies. For example, the, there is a very symbolic one. It's called the Aikoku Koshin Kyoku. So literally it means patriotic march. And it's very obviously that like the authorities and the government trying to uh, cultivate the nationalist uh, emotions and sentiments of the public in order to support the war aims. So it is um, one of the military sides of popular song that uh, I found very, very interesting during my research. So where would songs like Aiko Kokushin Koku, the Patriotic March, mm. where would they be played or where would, how would they reach the public? As I mentioned, uh, it was a really useful tool for the Japanese authorities to, to use this kind of war songs as propaganda. So one of the ways or the major ways to propagate these uh, nationalist ideas is through media, right? So actually from around July 1937, the NHK, that is the Japan Broadcasting Corporation began to air war songs. Basically, the program was renamed to Warera no Uta, literally mean our songs. So, I think it is a very conspicuous manifestation of the people at that time, of how they are supporting and how the whole nation is is involved in that war. And you mentioned this is July 1937, so the timing yes. of this is very conspicuous. Because July 1937 is the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War. This is dates to the Marco Polo Bridge incident, which is the start of this all-out war. Yeah. But then things change in the post-war period, right? So you're yeah. talking about, you know, these are maybe songs that are, are promoting militarism and promoting support for militarist causes. What happens then after 1945, after the end of the war? Uh, after the end of the war, when it comes to the defeat of the whole nation, the theme of the war songs centered on the dark sides of the war. Like, of course, the grievances of losing their homes, losing their family members and relatives and sufferings and grievances towards their enemies. That's how I found the so-called Japanese war songs evolved over the course of the war itself hmm. in the historical context. So after 1945, the defeat of Japan, popular music was still being used as a useful tool for propaganda. But this time it's not the propaganda for Japanese militarism, but it's the propaganda of American or Western democracy, consumerism, and the bright future that it will bring to the Japanese people under the leadership of the United States. In the presentation, I actually described the post-war popularity of jazz music as a mirror on the changing national cultural identity because I think that the alteration and creation of Japan's new cultural identity can be reflected from the changing music culture and the growing popularity of this kind of jazz music which is originated at the African-American community. 
Actually, jazz music represented America's classical music, a profound artistic genre of African American invention. So, as I mentioned, all these kind of、uh, influences the United States trying to bring out in Japanese society is trying to introduce.、Uh, Democratic elements and trying to infiltrate this and propagate this this kind of ideas not only in Japan but also in other defeated countries after the Second World War. Now, if we were to look for one song in particular that encapsulates that whole idea of jazz as promoting democracy and a bright future, what is there any one that comes to mind? Yeah, I think there is a really a symbolic song. It's called、uh, Tokyo Boogie Woogie. Which was、uh, published in the 1947. I think,、uh, as I talk about the military side of Japanese popular songs, such as the patriotic parts during the wartime, this song is,、uh, on the other hand, the political or more of the social cultural side of Japanese popular music, because、uh, many people actually regarded it as、uh, evidence of the increasingly.、Uh, Americanized culture, and or it can be called as an infiltration of American culture, more precisely, because is it、uh, talking about comparing cultural dynamics that、um, coming to a head, just as Japan's traditionally hierarchical society. So as how is it going to shift towards a middle class democracy and mass consumerism, free market. So I think this song is really symbolic that how people at that time are being influenced by the American propaganda and how the growing popularity of it reflect the national identity at that time. That's a great point. I mean, even looking at the lyrics, you know, Tokyo boogie woogie, rhythm ookie ookie. Yeah. <laughs> like this, this idea of vitality of the city and this kind of promising future for Japan under. The shepherding of the United States、uh, occupation forces,、yeah. the promise of democracy and、yeah. the rebuilt economy, and all these things. And of course,、sure. the, the difference was or the re, the situation on the ground for many people was very different in Tokyo in 1947 when the song came out. Yes. And so you get this. It's a good illustration of how these songs, in some ways, there is a there is a divide between the. Mainstream narratives of the post-war and some of the things that make these songs popular. We could almost think of these as kind of subversive songs or counterculture songs. And certainly, when we get into the 1950s and 60s, we see a lot of that. If we look into the historical context of post-war Japan, we know that after the defeat, Japan actually was creating a so-called Japanese miracle, because they are trying to put、uh, economic growth as the top priority of all times, and they are successful because we can see from the figures, from the numbers, they are really having a very rapid reconstruction of the whole country and economic developments. Surprise and praise by all the other countries at that time, but I'm going to introduce a song that are going to suggest some dark sides of so-called a、uh, Japanese miracle. So it is sung by the post-war pop diva called Misora Hibari. This song is called Kanashi Sake, which literally means、uh, mournful sake, which was、uh, published in 1966. So the literate the lyrics of this song was.、Uh, Basically about a woman sitting alone at a bar, 
and her tears falling down on the sake, and about how she meets、uh, the lost love, and how sad she was, how suffered she was from the separation from her love and the loneliness. So the main theme of the song is loneliness and sadness, right? But many Japanese people. After they listen to this song, they feel like this song is not just about romantic love relationships because it's more like about after the rapid economic growth of the Japanese society, many people move to the cities from countryside. What kind of mental and emotional change and transformation they have experienced during that era? So as I mentioned, I think this song reflects some kind of dark side of the rapid economic growth. It can be described as a counter mainstream popular culture, and because the mainstream narrative or the dominant ideology of Japanese society at that time is economic growth and consumerism. So this song is really symbolic in this way. And even these songs we think of as just saccharine pop music, right?、Yeah. And Sometimes, when you look a little bit closer at the lyrics, do have these somewhat subversive suggestions.、Uh, one that I always think of is this、uh, song by Sakamoto Q called "Ue o Muite Aruko," which in English was translated as "Sukiyaki," which has nothing、mm. to do with anything to go with the song. They just wanted a name that sounded very、mm. Japanese, and it's again this very kind of catchy pop melody. But、mm. when you think about the lyrics,、mm. and he's talking about you know walking, he. he Looks up as he walks so that the tears don't stream down his face, and makes it just you know this one too. It sounds like well maybe he's thinking about the kind of longing for a lost love,、mm. but then it turns out that there's a much much more political message behind the song, and so according to Sakamoto Q, it, the lyrics are actually a reference to an incident in which he was walking home. From a protest in 1960, where thousands of students and people all across the Japanese、uh, societal spectrum got together to protest what's called the Ampo Treaty, which is this、uh, security treaty between the United States and Japan. Despite the protest, the, the treaty was still pushed through by the sitting government, and so he's walking home, realizing the futility of these political protests. And so this is why he's crying, and he but he doesn't want anybody to see him crying, so he's looking、yeah. up. And so what we think of is this very kind of saccharine pop melody. It's very catchy, so catchy that it got popular in the U.S., which is why they named it sukiyaki. But it actually, when you look closer, it does have this somewhat subversive political message. And so that goes back to your point about how music as a whole, pop music, it's not just this kind of empty medium. Yeah. In fact, it it has very political. Uh, overtones at the same time. You mentioned that you liked contemporary music. So,、mm. who would you say is your favorite Japanese pop music artist? In my high school time, I, I'm really addicted to the boy bands and solo singers from the Johnnies because, you know, at that age, every girls like to chase after those、uh, charming guys, right? But 
Now I'm more uh, shifted to some music that was really baller style or in a slow speed because I think I'm, yeah, that, that's maybe another aspect of growth. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Which, which artist in particular? Hirai Ken or, or who? So recently, after I watched the TV drama Unnatural, I was really addicted with the theme song called Lemon, sung by Kenshi Yonetsu. And because I love this song, I'm trying to search for other songs by the same singer. So, like, gradually, I really addicted to his style because actually he's a, quite a young singer, but now the Japanese society regarded him as a genius because at this young age he actually composed and uh, sang a lot of uh, popular songs already so yeah, yeah, yeah no, he's my reasons <laughs> I've never heard of favorite <laughs> yeah I really recommend people to <laughs> oh, give, a, give a hear for it great we all have our homework now <laughs> okay well thank you so much thank you professor Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website. Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>